Well, good morning, everybody. Glad you're here. You can uh, grab your seats. and If you can turn to Revelation chapter 19, that's where we'll be this morning. We've been working through our series in the book of Revelation called Blessed. And if, for those of you who are new to this series, the book of Revelation, uh, at the very beginning in chapter 1, John, who is writing this, most scholars believe it's John the Apostle, and so is John, who is one of the followers of Jesus and close personal followers of Jesus. He's been exiled to an island because of his witness. He has represented Christ, and they've tried to kill him, and they can't kill him. God keeps him alive, and so they put him on an island with criminals and sick people, and he then starts converting them on the island and taking care of them. And then in the midst of that, God gives him a revelation. This revelation he gives him can be very confusing because it's symbolic as well as literal. It's both, and it's hard to know which is which sometimes when we're reading through the passage. So it's not necessarily an easy book to interpret, but God intended it to be that way, which we've talked about the last several weeks. The reason it's supposed to be a blessing, John says the one who reads this is blessed. Those who hear and keep it are blessed. And then at the end of the book, in chapter 22, John repeats himself, and he says, blessed is he who heeds this book. So John is basically saying, this book, Revelation, is all about blessing. And the word bless means happy. That's what it means. You can try to make it mean something else. The word means like joy and happiness. And we've talked about this week after week. But my frustration of why we've waited so long to preach through the book of Revelation, because we've been preaching through the Bible the last decade, every book, every scripture pretty much going through it, We've waited for Revelation, number one, because we needed the rest of the Bible to interpret it properly. But number two, Revelation, if you don't understand the purpose of the world, the purpose of your life and what's going to happen, can be very confusing. It doesn't seem like a blessing and happiness. It seems like something scary and panicky. And most Christians approach the book of Revelation not as this book that's a, this incredible, glorious blessing and wonder, but as something that's like, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? How do we avoid it? What? That's not the point of the book. The point of the book is to give those who believe in Jesus incredible joy and happiness, and then to take that message out to the world. That's the point of the book. John writes the first chapter, and he says that's the point. He ends the book with that's the point. And if you want to know what true blessing looks like, you can go back and listen to one of our first sermons on the series. But Matthew chapter 5, Jesus gives the Beatitudes, which are the blessings. And he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn. And he goes through that. One of the things to keep in mind when we read the book of Revelation, we said this week after week, is Acts. Jesus says in the book of Acts to his followers, his followers ask him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? So these guys have followed Jesus. They've been persecuted. They've watched Jesus be crucified and come back to life. They're asking Jesus, okay, was this worth it? Is now the time you've come back to life that you're going to bring your angels and the prophecies of the Old Testament are going to come true and Jerusalem's going to be restored and the world's going to be made new. It's, is now that time? And Jesus answers them and he says, it is not for you to know the times or the periods the Father has set by his own authority. And then we go to the book of Revelation and we argue about the times and seasons that the Father has set. Stop. Jesus himself said, you will not know. But trust me. 
Then he says, but, <laughs> whenever you see a however or a but or a therefore in Scripture, he says, you will not receive all these answers about how it's all going to work out and your little charts of when it's going to happen and Christians have argued about, I think, unbiblically for centuries. He says, you'll receive power. When the Holy Spirit's come on you. Power to do what? To tell the future? Power to make crazy things happen? No. Power to be my witness. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the remotest parts of the earth. I'm going to give you the power. The word witness there means martyr. It's where we get the word martyr. I'm going to give you the power to endure the mess. Just like I did when I walked the earth and they crucified me. I'm going to give you the ability to go through this and see me and trust me and ask the world to do the same as you go out. That was Jesus' last words to his disciples before he transcended and went into heaven. Then we get to the book of Revelation. Instead of taking this as a blessing, we just argue about the book. Well, now we're at the end of Revelation. We've gone through the hard chapters. 12 through 18 are some of the hardest chapters in the Bible. They're very difficult. Lots of signs and symbols and crazy stuff happening. It's like watching a movie where there's a flashback and then a flash forward. And wait, am I in the present? Am I in the past? Have you ever watched a movie like that? We talked about that last week where you walk in in the middle of it and there's like, he's a kid. And wait, who's that guy? Oh, that's when he was a kid. And then he's, and you're like, I cannot follow this thing. I'm going to go out and do some more baking. Like I'm done, right? Like you missed the whole first part. That's the book of Revelation. It's flash forward, flashback, and we're not sure what's a flash forward, flashback half the time when we read the book. But the point of the book is to trust God that he has a plan and it's going to come to completion. And when we get to chapters 19, 20, 21, and 22, we see the full display of the completion. All the hard stuff's pretty much wrapping up and the glory and beauty and majesty of God are on full final display and it is glorious and it should make our heart have so much joy and happiness that like ah but you know one of the problems in the church today it's not just today for the last several centuries is that we know more about hell than we do heaven we know more about what to avoid and all the awful stuff than we know the beauty of these last four chapters of the bible that God lays out the glorious picture of eternity and what heaven's going to be like on a new earth, perfect, and a new heaven, new authorities. And we know very little. We did a series on the book of heaven a number of years ago, and we passed out books and read together some of the things that we can know about heaven. I would encourage you to do some study on what you can know about heaven. It's amazing. It's not us sitting on clouds playing harps. And guitars. That is not heaven. It is a new earth, a new beginning in new bodies. Promises that we long for, that we are seeing slip away as we get older, as our world falls apart, as sickness runs rampant, and we're like, is there any hope? And God says, absolutely. And then He gives us these last four chapters to say, see, I told you. Trust me through it. And we've been through it in the book of Revelation. There have been seven seals of judgment, seven trumpets of judgment, seven, I'm sorry, seven seals, and then finally seven bowls of trumpet. Three sevens, that's perfect in the Bible. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Trinity, three, and seven perfect creation. 
perfect judgment has now fallen. Now all that's left after chapter 19 is blessing. And so this morning, last week we looked at the fact that God looked at what a faithful prostitute is. I would encourage you to go back and listen to that message. It seems like an oxymoron. It's not if you know the scriptures. This week, I want us to look at this. I made up a new word for this. Typically, I take my word straight from the Bible, and it's still there, but here it is. Don't criticize me. Praise giving. Because it's Thanksgiving. And if we can make up a word called Thanksgiving, I can put two words together and make up praise giving. Okay? Let me explain the difference. See, Thanksgiving is us giving thanks to God for the things he does and the things he gives us. Praise giving is I give praise to God not for anything he's done or given me, but because of who he is and I'm not. That's praise giving. We should be doing a lot more praise giving than we do thanksgiving. Because thanksgiving, it's kind of like a deal, right? You do this, I do this, I get all this, like, thank you so much. And honestly, if we're really honest in the deepest of our hearts, most of the time you give thanks to God, not because you're really grateful for who he is, but you're afraid if you don't give thanks, he'll take it away. So you're like, oh, I better thank God for this. And right, God, like, thanks, I have thanks, right? Like, good, I keep this, right? Thanks. God may ask you, give it up. Surrender it to me and still give me praise. Surrender it to me and still give me the praise that's due my name. And that's what you see through all of the Old Testament prophets and all of the Old Testament followers of God. Their willingness to give up and say, as for me and my house, we will follow the Lord. Whatever the cost, whatever it takes, we will give praise to him through whatever he takes us through. That is a message we need today. You know, celebrating Thanksgiving, we love our feasts, right? Most of us are probably going to have at least one, if not two or three or four Thanksgivings. We love the Thanksgiving feast we've created, but do you even know the feast that God created in the Bible? The multiple feasts of the Old Testament that he asked his people to celebrate? Then unfortunately the church, because they didn't like the Jews, we changed the names of all the festivals? Because we didn't want to give the Jews any credit? It's not about giving the Jews credit. It's giving God credit. He's the one. And we don't even know God's festivals anymore. We don't even know the times and things that he has done, that he's laid out clearly, because we're so consumed with our events and our things and what we've created that we're like, oh yeah, God, that's fine, but you know, we got our Thanksgiving. We want to really take time to thank God for these pilgrims and this thing that happened. I'm not saying we shouldn't do that, but do you even take the time to praise him for Passover, for the Feast of Tabernacles and the harvest for Sukkot and the giving of the Torah and the Holy Spirit and to praise him and thank him for those things most of us don't even know what those words are mean why because when you get to the end of the book if you don't know what those are you're going to be super confused it's going to make no sense to you if you know what those feasts and those seasons are you are going to be with everybody else going I know what that is and you're going to be given praise because <laughs> you're like oh yeah I've been waiting for this. I've been waiting to tabernacle with my God since the old, I, all, yes, thank you, I'm ready to go. 
And as we get into this last chapter, we'll see two feasts. Two feasts. Two celebration. Two meals. And you know, how we eat and feast really does say something about us, doesn't it? I'm not talking about how fast you eat, slow down, or how sloppy you eat, okay? I'm a fast eater. I got to like think of like chew your food and slow down. And as I've gotten older, that's more necessary because the digestion process and acid reflux has come into my life now as a blessing from God to slow me down and teach me how to enjoy my food, (laughs) not inhale it, right? And there's something to be said about even the way we do the simplest things, which is eat, that declares something about who we believe provided it. And the experience of eating with other people that I don't want to leave this moment. I don't just want to inhale it and get on to something else in the football game. I want to sit at the table with my brothers and sisters, with my family and with my God. And I want to celebrate that we can eat and be filled. That's what we see as we get to the end. 19.1 says, after this, after this being all the seven judgments, the great Babylon has been destroyed, which we looked at. He said, after this, I heard something like a loud voice of a vast multitude in heaven saying, hallelujah, salvation, glory, and power belong to our God. This is what we read and Jay read, and he says, because, we'll look at that in a second. This is what Jay read in chapter 12 of Revelation. This phrase, salvation, glory, and power, you see over and over again in the book of Revelation. By the way, this word hallelujah, it has not been mentioned or written down in God's words since the Old Testament until this point of the Bible. A phrase we use all the time, and hallelujah means praise Yahweh. That's what the word means. It is a Jewish word, a Hebrew word. It's mentioned four times in this chapter. It has not been written in the New Testament anywhere up until this point. This is the culmination of the ultimate praise. Like God's been saving this word for the end. He has purposely not had any of his apostles write this word through the entire of the Old Testament so that he can, or New Testament, so that he can save it for this moment. And so this hallelujah that we take for granted and we just sing, God is like, no, no, no. This is the ultimate praise. Praise for what? Because he's def- all these judgments and he's going to make my life better and I'm not, no. Praise because finally Yahweh gets all the credit he deserves. It's finally done. He's going to get it all. And so we can say with a vast multitude in all of heaven with full confidence, hallelujah, it's done. And it's said four times in this passage. Bless you. And four times, that's why we're preaching Revelation, blessing. So four times he says it, and four times The word because is said, typically after the hallelujah. He gives the hallelujah, and we're like, okay, yeah. And he goes, no, 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 no. Let me tell you why you just said hallelujah. Because. And he lays this out beautifully for us to see. Look, this is a loud, like a vast multitude. This is like being at a football game, and everybody's like, I mean, just screaming. Right? Like waiting for this moment where they get the touchdown. It's the end of the game. It's fourth and one. You know, no time left on the clock. And it's like, are they going to make it? And they go in and everybody's going nuts. Now, this isn't out of control. 
This is a controlled, purposeful hallelujah. This isn't something that's like, I feel. No, this is total focus on not any of the benefits. This is total focus on praise him and nothing else. Nothing else matters in this moment. I don't know if you've ever even looked at God that way in your life. That he is that worthy of your attention and praise. By the way, the reason we gather all the time as believers is so that we can practice this before we get there. And those who say, I can be a Christian and I don't have to be around God's people and don't have to go to church, what planet are you on? This is our God. He's like, no, I want you to gather together. I want you to encourage one another. I want to hear your praise and your thanksgivings. Where two or more are gathered, I am there. Be, Be around believers. And then he says, why? Why are we singing hallelujah? Why is this vast multitude in heaven now crying out when they were kind of, we've seen them be silent. Now it's like, a, look at this. Because his judgments are true and righteous because he has judged the notorious prostitute who corrupted the earth with her sexual immorality. His immorality. Sexual immorality there, the word pornea, which we talked about last week, does not mean Sexual immorality, it means all kinds of immoralities and idols. And he has avenged the blood of his slaves that was on her hands. God is referring, remember, to this her. Remember in the Old Testament, the book of Proverbs, talking about wisdom is referred to as a her. So there are two hers in the Bible. The really wise, obedient her and the disobedient prostitute her. It's not against women here. It's saying, no, there are two types of men. There are two types of women. Those who follow God and are wise and those who don't. And are against him. And then he says, Hallelujah, again. Her smoke ascends forever and ever. That's talking about hell in the end and the lake of fire. Then the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who is seated on the throne, saying, Amen. The word Amen means so be it. It is like Amen. So good. So be it. That's a word we struggle with, isn't it? God tells us what to do, and we're like, "Eh, I'm not sure about that, God. I don't think I want to do that. No, I got a better plan. This guy over here told me I could do it this way. This gal over here told me I could do it this way. What did God say? Because when God says something, our proper response is, so be it. So be it. It is to bow at him and say, so be it. I don't understand this. I don't know the times or the periods. I don't know how this works but I trust you and so be it. It is a peace. We say amen like it's the end of a prayer, like amen, right? Like, I don't know, what do they pray for? (laughs) I don't know if I want to say amen. What were you praying about? I may not agree with you and so be it. But in this, it's amen. And then there's another hallelujah. There's three hallelujahs being saved up. A voice came from the throne saying, praise our God, praise giving and all his slaves who fear him, both great or both small and great. God recognizes that some people are seen as greater than others. Some people he uses for great things and some people for small things. Most of us will be used for small things. You want to know why I know that? Because most of the people in the Bible are used for small things. And all the great people were raised up by people who were used in small ways for small things. The great people were born from moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas and great grandmas and grandpas and so on and so forth that weren't great, according to our standards. And God raised them up through that faithfulness to be great. That's the story of our Bible. 
It's the story of our book. We fit somewhere in it. It's not about whether we're great or not. He says it doesn't matter. We all know we're slaves. We all know we're his. So we just give praise to him. It doesn't matter. We all fall down before him. He says three things. It's kind of like a trinity. He says salvation, glory, and power. This is a great picture of the trinity. Salvation coming from Jesus. Glory, the glory of the Father and power that's given through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is a picture of the Trinity coming together and saying salvation, glory, and power. All together, one, being accomplished. The question is, are we looking for somewhere else to be saved? Are we looking for a little glory for ourselves and a little glory in something else than God? And are we looking for power that we can use versus the power of God to be his witnesses that will probably cost us greatly? So how do we know that when he says that his judgments are true and righteous? How do we know that? Well, because God himself chose to be used. Jesus himself became sin for us so that we might become right with God. See, God doesn't do anything to anyone else that he isn't willing to take himself. The Christian God. The other gods they put everything on humans at a distance. The God of the Bible became a human to take everything on himself so that when he asked a requirement from us, he said, I did it. I did it. I did it. No other religion puts God in that position. Not a one. Because he loved us so much and prove that his righteousness, his righteousness and his judgments were true because he took the judgment for us and then came back to life to conquer the death that he said we all deserve because of our sin. We go on and it continues and he said, then I heard something like a voice of a vast multitude, again another multitude, the sound of cascading waters, like a rumbling of thunder, like it's shaking. I don't know if you've ever been around the stadium at IU when the Stands are packed, so typically on the Ohio State game. Um, and the sta stands are packed, right? And IU or the team scores a touchdown, and it's, it's like you can hear it for miles. It's like, what is that rumbling? What was that? Oh, IU scored a touchdown. They're still going to get beat, though. I'm sorry. Anyway, so they find a way to lose against Ohio State every time. I wish, you know, anyway, my son's an Ohio State fan, so... He's going to kill me for that. But anyway, okay. He jumps in and he says, hallelujah, because, again, why can you praise Yahweh? Why can you do this? Well, his, righteous, his, his judgments are righteous and true. He's going to judge those who just use people, the prostitution that happens in our world. It's all about exchanging ourselves for something. He's going to do all of that because of who he is. He's avenged the blood of those that have been his martyrs, that have served him. He hasn't forgotten them. He hasn't just passed over it and been like, oh, no big deal. No, he's going to seri take seriously what was done and put that judgment either on people or on himself. And those of us who know him, we look to him and say, God, I deserve that, but you took it. And there's going to be a whole group of people we'll see who say, you know what? I want nothing to do with you dying for me. I'll fight you for it. He goes on and he says, because. Why? Because our Lord God, the Almighty, has begun to reign. It's the already but not yet. He's begun to reign but not fully yet. It's like when you become a believer, you begin to allow God to reign in your heart, but it's not fully yet. 
And then by the time you get older, you realize how messed up you are in your heart. And you're like, will God ever save me? Because <laughs> I'm a disaster. Because the further I go, sure, I'm not doing the sins that I used to do, but mainly because they cost me a lot. It's not because I'm really in love with God. It's like, no, it's just stupid. I'm not going to do it. It costs me a lot. Well, there's no righteousness. There's no amen and hallelujah in that. That's like a duh. Versus doing the right thing and it no longer pays off in our culture. It's no longer beneficial and it really costs you and you still say amen and hallelujah. Because I trust you. And I trust your judgments. Because you're going to reign someday. And I'm just grateful that you've started in my life. And I'm grateful that you've been patient with me. Because I deserve so much worse. Then he goes on and he says, let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory. Let us be glad. Let us rejoice. And let us say it's all about you. And see, we love to be glad and rejoice when things are going well. We love to give God glory when things are working out well. But God says, no, 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 no. Be glad and rejoice and give me glory even when your life is a disaster. Trust me. Give yourself to me. I am the great I am, the great Yahweh, the praise Yahweh, hallelujah, because that's who I am. And then he goes on and he says this. Why? Why should we be glad, rejoice, and give him glory? Here it is. Because the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure. For the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. This has been prepared by others. The bride didn't prepare her. I mean, yes, she, she has a part in it, but it's like, no, no, no. The Lord calls the bride. The bride says, I want to be prepared. And the test of whether you're being prepared is if you allow the righteous acts of the saints to pour over your life. Do you believe what Moses said? Do you believe what John said? Do you act on those things? Do you believe the church? Do you, do you participate in allowing what God has done through saints? This word saint isn't talking about who the church says is a saint. This word here, saint, is the same one Paul uses when he writes every letter and he says to the saints in Ephesus, to the saints in Galatia, to the saints. It's anyone that's a believer. You've been anointed with sainthood, not because of what you've done, but because of what he did on your behalf. Now, does God recognize some people over and above? Absolutely. That's why we have these books. It's why he talks about Moses being one of the meekest men ever. No one more righteous than Job. Like God says these things, but it's not like they're better or greater. And either way, it doesn't matter if you're small or great. We just saw we're all going to come together. Here's the deal. Why should we have these hallelujahs? Why should we have this amen? Why should we be so glad? You ready for this? Because the greatest relationship that all of humanity is longing for and that you long for and that I long for and that every Hallmark and every Marvel movie takes advantage of has now come to pass. There's no more hero watching. There's no, no hero to look for. He's here. There's no more lover to find. He's here. 
There's, there's nothing else that's going to fill me up. Like, this is it. Let us be glad because all those things we were trying to fill our life with and just, they never got us there. <laughs> now we're there. It's, it's fully on. Like, our marriages are all about give and take, tit for tat. That's how we do relationships in our culture. And God's like, that's not how I do it. I give everything. I gave my son. I gave my life. I give it all for the ones that I've created. And I, res- and I expect praise in return. Because a changed heart will give that. Let me ask you. Have you been married to the lamb? See, to be married to the lamb is kind of hard. I'd rather be married to a king. Right? Or a queen. That'd be great. King and queen, they got power. They get to do stuff, right? Like, yeah. Um, you're married to a lamb. You know what lambs are used for? Go to a restaurant. You'll find out what we eat them. You're married to someone who's like, no, no, no. In this family, we give our lives. You want to come on and be a part of the family? No. I'm looking for a queen. I'm looking for a king. Well, I am a queen or king, just not yet. Right now, we're doing the lamb thing. <laughs> eventually, you'll be given a throne, eventually. But right now, we're doing the lamb thing. Like, we're going we're gonna to suffer. We're going to die together. It's going to be great. It's going to be wonderful. We're going to do it all together. It's going to be a party. We're going to praise God through it all. It's like, nah, I'm looking for the queen. (laughs) I'm looking for the king. This whole lamb thing, mm, not so much. Until you realize that the reason you're married to a lamb is because he's giving himself to you. And there's no hope for you because if you married a king or a queen, they'd kill you. Because you would subvert their authority and you would be treasonous to them and to be righteous and make a righteous judgment, that queen or that king would have to take you out for your treason against them and your treason against their nation. And our God says, I've already taken care of that as long as you want to marry the lamb. And someday I'm going to reign as king, but right now we lay down our lives because there are people who don't understand how relationships work. They're not getting themselves ready. They think they've found it. Listen, get married. The Bible says marriage is great. The Bible commands us to give sons and daughters in marriage in the midst of Babylon, in the midst of captivity and mess. We've been doing it, do it, great. Have kids, great. Why? Because God says to do it. Children are a blessing from the Lord. Even the ones you don't think are a blessing, they're still a blessing from the Lord. Okay, they are. Now, does that mean we don't hold them accountable? No, we, we need to hold them accountable. That's what the, but he says, are you preparing yourself for that marriage? Listen, God is being so patient and gracious with us. He's getting us ready. He's cleaning our laundry every day, giving us fine linen when we don't deserve it because he wants to prepare us and get us ready to be with him. And so often we're just trying to find out how to avoid him. And he's like, no, I want to be with you. And he says it represents the the great acts. You see, the wife prepared herself. She didn't prostitute herself. She was given fine linen. See, in the Old Testament, Israel was referred to as God's wife and referred to as an unfaithful wife in Hosea, Isaiah, Ezekiel. Multiple books of the Bible talk about it. Jeremiah. In the New Testament, you ready for this? The church, God's people now, grafted in through Abraham, the church, is called the fiancé of Jesus. Waiting for the day of marriage. 
2 Corinthians and Ephesians both talk about this, that we're not quite there yet. We're waiting for the day. So you wonder why it's not complete? You wonder why there feels like there's distance? Because Jesus said, hey, I'm going to prepare a place for you, which was the Old Testament picture of marriage. The husband was responsible to make a house, to make a home. Then he would, they would be betrothed. That betrothal was considered marriage in Jewish culture. When you were betrothed and the families agreed on the betrothal, you went down a long process could be years, process of getting ready to be married. The man had responsibilities, the woman had responsibilities to get ready for the day when the parents and everybody agreed, you go get your bride. And the groom would go. They would celebrate, he would go, he would get the woman in front of the community, in front of everyone. He would take her out of their parents' home and take her to the place he's prepared and there they would consummate the marriage. They would come out and everybody would celebrate that they've consummated the marriage. Awkward. They would celebrate that and, in the, and then they'd have a party and feast together because these two got themselves ready. I wish we had young people that were getting themselves ready. Listen, if you want to learn how to be a wife, then learn how to be a wife in the church. Learn how to be a bride in the church. If you want to be, learn how to be a good husband, learn how to be Christ in the church. Give yourselves to your church family, to your brothers and sisters in Christ. If you can't do that and you think marriage is going to fix something, oh my goodness, you are in for a mess. You are, you are in for some hurting, man. Deep hurting. We give ourselves to the body of Christ and then God shows us how to give ourselves to one another. Ephesians says this. First thing, Ephesians 5.21, Paul's talking about this issue of praise. Right before 5.21, Paul talks about how we're to behave in the church and how we're supposed to praise in the church. Sing psalms, give thanks. He says, this is, what, this is how what praise looks like. Be careful with your life. Be wise because the days are evil. Paul says all of this right before this. And then he says, submit to one another in the fear of Christ. Most of us submit because of the fear of consequences and the fear of possible loss. We do not submit to someone because we see their glory. We only submit because of what they do or don't do for us. God's not like that. God, Jesus fully submitted himself because he honored the Father's request and the agreement from the foundation of the earth that this is the way it would work. That's what he did. Then he goes on and he says this in chapter 22. He says, you need to submit to one another. You go, okay, well, what does this look like to submit to one another? And Paul, God has Paul write in his wisdom what Revelation talks about. He says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, does submission mean you just take abuse? No. As we read in Revelation, there's coming a day when Jesus isn't going to take any more abuse. Not a bit. And it's going to be bad. And those who stand against him, we'll see, are destroyed. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of the body, not the husband. Jesus is the savior of the body. Don't misinterpret that. <laughs> Jesus is the savior of the body. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so wives are to submit to their husbands and everything. You go, well, did God really say? I mean, God's not very modern. He doesn't know how it works today. Maybe God's trying to teach us something about our own hearts. And if you remember you're a bride, we're all the bride of Christ, then you read that and you go, huh, I wonder how I should be a bride in the church. 
Then he goes on, he says, husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. How are these linens made white? It's the word. It's what the saints have said and done throughout history. How did this, uh, he did this to present the church to himself in splendor. <laughs> like, why, did, why was the husband doing all this? Because he just wanted to show off how great this woman was. Not because he wanted to show off how great and awesome he is and how successful he is. That's what Christ does. Christ says, I want to give glory to the Father. And the way to do that is for me to raise up a bride and present him to her to the Father and say, Dad, look at what I've done. And the Father says, great job, son. And then we go, wow, we're just so glad to be a part of all this because we were prostitutes. We were horrible. We deserve nothing. And yet you saved us. Then he goes on and he says, in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything else like that, but holy and blameless. See, here's our problem. We don't believe that God can make us holy and blameless. So we keep trying to make ourselves holy and blameless. Now, does that mean we don't participate in doing it? Absolutely. But our participation is literally just waiting. The husband's getting everything ready. I'm still living at home being like, well, I'm here serving at home like I'm supposed to. Waiting for you to come back and get me. When you coming? Kind of tired of this. Like I know we're betrothed. Ready to go anytime. That's our responsibility. That's how you become holy and blameless. This picture is how we're to behave in the body of Christ. It's how we give ourselves. It is literally impossible for you to do without Jesus doing it through you. It's impossible. You have to have God doing it. And the only way to continue to do it, are you ready for this? Is if you're giving praise. Because before Paul gives this passage, he says this is how all of you should be praising God. And if you're not praising God, then you're going to mess this marriage thing up. You're going to mess this kid thing up, which he talks about next. You're going to mess this employment thing up. He talks about that, this government. You're going to mess it all up if you don't know how to give me praise and why you're giving me praise. And this book in Revelation shows us exactly. You see, we try to present ourselves instead of presenting others. And Christ presents himself so that he can present others. One day, everybody's going to see the church for what she is. The precious, beautiful bride of Christ that he died for. He goes on, then he says, he's, then he said to me, write, John's told to write multiple times, like, you better write this down. <laughs> write this down. You ever had that in your house, right? Having a family meeting? Um, yeah, I, I hear you. Uh, could you get out your phone and write this down, please? I need you to write this. Like, that happens in my house all the time, right? Like, I'm going, uh-huh, uh-huh. And my wife's like, no, write it down. I can see you're looking through me. You're thinking about something else. Or she's nice enough to write it down for me, which is what God does. Like, here, I love you. Love me, please. <laughs> Here's a list, right? The joke in our house is that I go to the store and never come back with the right things. I try really hard. I pray. I call her on the phone while I'm in the store. Honey, there's three different kinds. Which one do I get? Oh, this, this one. I bring it up. She's like, that's not the one. I'm like, you get that. How can I not get this right? He goes on and he says, right, those invited to the feast of the lamb are fortunate. 
Do you recognize how fortunate you are to be invited to church? To simply be invited and to respond is a miracle of the act of God. Especially to our church. We don't even have our own building. Like, we don't have any trappings. We joke all the time. Like, somebody want my job? Go ahead. You got to get a second job to support yourself, and then you got to figure out how to make a place for people to meet. Good luck. Like, there's incredible job security. Nobody wants my job. <laughs> Paul says, these words of God are true. You are fortunate. And so often we as Christians look at the Christian life and think, oh, what a burden. It's 12 degrees outside and I got to go to church. Oh, so unfortunate. I wish it was warmer. Fine, move to Florida and go to church. Problem solved. Get that off your plate. I want you to be in church. And if you can't get up in 12 degree rather than do it, then move to Florida and get where it's warmer and you can get up and go to church, except for hurricanes. But anyway, like, there's problems everywhere. He goes on and he says, look at this. Then I fell at his feet to worship him. See, John recognized, just like the 24 elders, I've been invited to the greatest feast ever. I have been invited to something I don't deserve to be invited to. I am a scumbag, and I've got invited to this wedding and, and to sell. I don't, I don't even, I don't even, I shouldn't even be here. And John falls down, and he said to me, look at this. Don't do that. It's an angel. He's like, stop it. You can make mistakes on who you worship and God won't kill you because John makes a huge mistake. He is in heaven. Everybody's worshiping and John bows down to an angel and you can see all of heaven be like, oh gosh, John, what are you doing? Like, dude, stop. Like, no, we just sang like three hallelujahs and you're, no, don't worship angels. Stop it. He, him, get up, him, him there. And it's so easy for us to do as Christians. We worship our families. We worship our marriages. We worship our churches. We fall down and give them everything without realizing that we better be very careful because it is a very razor-thin edge that this looks like, oh, yeah, John's really worshiping. And this guy's like, do not do it that way. He goes on and he says, I am a fellow slave with you, your brothers who have the testimony about Jesus. See, the whole point of the Bible is the testimony about Jesus. From the beginning to the end, the entire book of the Bible is, who is this Jesus? Jesus' name means Yahweh who saves. Salvation, power, and, or salvation, glory, and power belong to him. The Bible says that the Father's good pleasure was to put all authority on the Son. The Holy Spirit's role, according to John, writing in his gospel, is to give the power to glorify Jesus. Everything the Holy Spirit does is to glorify Jesus, not himself. When you see somebody glorifying the Holy Spirit, run. The Holy Spirit is by design, designed to give glory to Jesus, and then Jesus gives glory to the Father, and then they all three invite us into that process. That is the biblical narrative. And he goes, worship God, because the testimony about Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Prophecy means the word of God. He says the testimony about Jesus and what he's done as the lamb and the coming king sums up all the Bible. It is the whole story, the whole picture, the whole prophecy rests on him. It's not about our morality. Christians, listen, Christianity is not about morality. Is morality important? Yes. But only so much that it glorifies Jesus. 
If it doesn't glorify him, the Bible says your works are filthy rags. The word for that is minstrel rags in the Greek. Paul says your works, my works are like minstrel rags if it isn't about Jesus. It's got to be about him. Because that's what everything in heaven is about. Everything in heaven for the next four chapters is like Jesus, the Lamb, the Lamb, Jesus. All of it. It's all been designed to point very simply. You want to know why? So that salvation is incredibly easy for us. Salvation is not hard. I don't have to work it out. I just have to be focused on the guy who's going to come get me. And so I can go share that message. I don't have to talk to my neighbor and be like, well, if you do these 10 things and these 10 steps and then you do this and you do that, then maybe when you get to the end, God will be like grading on a curve and you'll slide in. No, that is not Christianity. Christianity is the free offer of a relationship and grace. And here's the key. If you understand the free offer, your works will follow. If you're confused about the offer and you don't understand what this is, then you don't bow and worship. You're just trying to get goodies from God. And that means there's something broken in you and broken about you that you need to change so that you see this because it's coming one day. He goes on and says this. Then I saw heaven open. Now heaven opens up. And there was a white horse, its rider is called Faithful and True, and he judges and makes war in righteousness. So here's the key. Jesus doesn't come and do war like everybody else. Everybody else does war, right, because they want something. They're getting something. I want your resources. I want power. I want this. I want that. Jesus is like, no, I have to make war. I don't want to make war. You want to know why I know Jesus doesn't want to make war? Because he hasn't killed us yet. And we deserve it. The commercials I saw on TV last night, the things that are being advertised for that are just boldly, like completely against creation and God, I'm just like, are you serious that that's on TV right now? God, how do you not just come down and like, boom, blow it up? I don't, I have, because he's in a period of withholding his judgment, the Bible says, and Peter, he says, I desire that none would perish, but all would come to repentance. So I'm holding back my wrath because there are still some brides who are getting ready I need to go get. And so he's holding back. If you're not dead, it means God still loves you. He's not done with you yet. He's still trying to work on you because he cares. And he wants you to get ready because this is coming. So heaven opens up and there was a white horse and its rider is called Faithful and True. Man, the guy who's coming to get me is going to come on a white horse. Like this is like, here he comes, right? Like gather up your horses, yeehaw, it's coming down. And then he says, he is called Faithful and True. All of us are unfaithful and lie. He is always faithful and true. He gives us the whole truth even though we don't want to hear it. And he judges and makes war in righteousness. He always does it rightly. Not because he's angry. He doesn't fly off the handle. He has a plan. He is working it out. And he says, his eyes were like a fiery flame. And many crowns were on his head. And he had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe stained with blood. And his name is the word of God. So Jesus, he's the word. All the words we have of scripture, it's all about him. He is the word. Everything points to him. Then it says, the armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses. That's us. By this time, we're in heaven. There are no believers left on the earth at this point. Right? Like it's over. 
Heaven opens up and you're given a horse. I hope you guys know how to ride horses. I do. If you don't, you better get some lessons because you're going to get a horse, right? You're given a horse to ride. And look at this. This is beautiful. And we're wearing pure white linen. I've never ridden a horse with pure white linen on. That's going to be, anyway. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will shepherd them with an iron scepter. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God Almighty. He has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Just in case you're confused about who this guy on the horse is. Because remember, there was another guy on a white horse earlier in Revelation. He wasn't this guy. He was a false messiah. This is the real Messiah, and his name is written clearly, so you and everyone else knows. He also has flames coming out of his eyes and a sword coming out of his mouth. Like, that's different. <laughs> okay? Jesus is coming again. It says he trends the wine press. Do you know Jesus says? He wants us to drink of the grapevine, the communion, the grape juice, the wine, the, the bread. He says, until I come again and I eat with you again in my kingdom, at my table, I want this to be a remembering. Right now, we remember that we are taking the body of Christ and his blood, and that's what saves us and makes us last. At this point, look at this. He says, no more is there the winepress of forgiveness and grace that we take on a regular basis that access is done. You want to know why? Heaven has now been opened. There's no more access to heaven. It's all coming down on the earth and it's over. The access has been cut off. He has been holding back and holding back. Now he's got his army together. He's brought us all in. He's got it ready to go. It's time. The world hates this version of Jesus, by the way. It's why we love Christmas, but we've forgotten God's prescribed and commanded holidays of the Old Testament. Because God's commanded and prescribed holidays of the Old Testament normally involved a lot of sacrifice, a lot of blood. We love the little baby Jesus in the manger, right? Pray to little baby Jesus in the manger, right there. That's what we love. You know, our tuxedo Jesus, he's all dressed up and looks great, right? That's what we love. This Jesus? I don't know about this. This is kind of scary. It's not scary if you know that you know him. It's not scary if you know that you've been washed. It's not scary if you've trusted in him and you've given him praise. See, Jesus returns to make war. Isaiah says this about Jesus. This is the prophecy. This passage is one of the reasons why they rejected Jesus. Who is this coming from Eden in crimson stained garments from Basra? The, this one who is splendid in his apparel, rising up proudly, in his great might, it is I proclaiming vindication, power to save. Why are your clothes red and your garments like one who treads a winepress? I trampled the winepress alone and no one from the nations was with me. Jesus died alone on the cross for our sins. No one else could do it. I trampled them in my anger and ground them underfoot by my fury. Their blood spattered my garments and all my clothes were stained. For I planned the day of vengeance and the year of my redemption has come. See, they missed Jesus the first time because they were expecting him to do this and he came offering grace and forgiveness to you and to me that he still does today. But there's gonna come a day when this happens and we see it in Revelation. But that day's not here yet. He's not done yet redeeming us. 
17 says, Then I saw an angel standing on the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying, All the birds flying overhead, come, gather together for the great supper of the Lord, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of commanders, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of everyone, both free and slaves, small and great. Then I saw a beast. The kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and against his army. There are two feasts you're invited to. You can either partake in the feast that God offers of his flesh and his body, or the birds are going to come eat yours. Great or small, doesn't matter, because it's all about what you decided on this Jesus. And you know how you know if you've decided, do you spend more time making war with Jesus, or do you spend more time bowing to Jesus? Most people spend more time getting upset with God, and why are you doing this and that and this and that, rather than just worshiping him. Jesus is coming back. The heavens are going to open. He's going to have fiery eyes, a sword, and the world is still going to say, nope, we want to kill him. Have you ever been a part of crazy like that before? I have. Where you cannot reason with someone. They are, they are so far gone. There is no reasoning. There's no changing them. They are so far in their sin. They are so far gone. They will make war with everyone and everything to get what they want. You see this in addicts, drug addicts all the time. And there is no way to handle them except with authority. You can't be nice to them. You have to call the police. You have to call someone to stop their crazy, whatever it takes. That's the world we live in. That's not the God we see. Because Jesus will give his life. So which feast do you want to be a part of? The one that gives praise and thanksgiving? Or the one that says, I'm going to go to war because I can't stand what God has said in his word as he speaks. By the way, Jesus doesn't even have to kill anybody by doing anything. He just speaks and everything happens. Like the sword is in his mouth, not in his hand. He just speaks and it happens. But the beast was taken prisoner and along with him the false prophet who had performed the signs in his presence. He decided, or he deceived those who accepted the mark of the beast and those who worshipped image, image with these signs. We saw that in previous chapters. Both of them were thrown into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword that came from the mouth of the rider on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. See, we love to worship images and signs instead of worshiping the word. You see, the word is a person revealed in Jesus, and he's going to come back to make everything right. You see, there's a war happening in your life, and you get to decide how you're going to give praise as you're in the war. This war hasn't happened yet, but you have a war, the Bible says, it's happening in you right now as you sit there. Here's what it says. I say then, Paul says, walk in the spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the spirit. And the spirit desires what is against the flesh. There is a war going on in you every day. And your flesh, which is going to be eaten by these birds, if you choose to go the flesh route, will be eaten up. You can either surrender it now and give your flesh now and say, I'm done, I surrender, or it'll be taken from you. And God offers his spirit for us. Then he says, so that you don't do what you want. See, we live in a culture today that tells us that God wants to give us what we want. According to that, that means you're losing in the war. The question is, do you want what God wants? Are you preparing for what God wants? 
Or are you expecting God to give you what you want? And when he comes, get, comes to get you, you're going to say, well, I need to go see if you've prepared the right house and you've given me the right things. And, and then if I have, then I'll come into your house. And if not, I'm going back with my mommy and daddy. Because that's the way most of us are trying to get ready for God. Versus saying, I've surrendered all. It's an agreement that we're surrendered. I expect my family to hold me accountable, his family to hold me accountable. And when he comes and gets me, I go. And I take whatever he's prepared because I'm ready. That's the picture here. Then he gives what it looks like to live by the flesh. And then he gives, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness, and self-control. And he says, against these things, there is no law. You can do as much of them as you want in the power of the Holy Spirit. Love God's way, have joy God's way, have faith God's way. But see, we twist all these. We make love the way we desire it, not the way God says love is to be done. We find joy in things that God says not to find joy in because there's a battle in you and God is trying to show you don't want the things your flesh wants, want the things that I want because I've purchased you and I've given you my flesh. Then he says, those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desire. Who do you belong to? Who do you belong to? See, this is a battle until we finally get to heaven. It's a battle that, that there are going to be days when we fail and we follow the passions and desires and then we fall back down before God and we don't go to an angel, we don't go to a priest, we don't go to a prophet. We go before God Almighty and say, I'm undone. I want you to do something in me I can't do in myself. I feel this war. I am torn apart and I'm tired. I just want to surrender to you. That's what God says. So how do we give praise practically? Well, God actually gives us a way to do this battle. In Ephesians, Paul tells us how to be able to practice this really well. He says, finally, at the end of his letter, after he's given all these things of how to run the church, he says, finally... Be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Salvation and power and glory belong to our God. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the tactics of the devil. Doesn't say so you can stand against China. Doesn't say so you can stand against your neighbor. It doesn't say you can... The devil. And then he says, For our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world powers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. We live in a war zone. And most of us are just trying to figure out how to not participate in the war. I watched a movie that I hadn't seen in a long time this week. And it's the story of, I think, what's it called? Heartbreak Ridge? I think is the, yep, what, Hacksaw Ridge. Hacksaw Ridge, where there was a conscientious objector in the military who actually, he, he literally drafted himself he, he he wasn't drafted he said I'm going to sign up so that I can go but here's the deal I refuse to pick up a weapon because of something that happened in his past and his religious beliefs he's like but but I want to be a medic and I'll save lives and this whole movie he is abused he is brutalized he is made fun of he is just they cannot believe like oh you're trying to get out of this you don't want to fight you don't know I'll do anything and as you watch the movie the beauty of this is that when the Japanese push the entire army off the mountain he stays on the mountain as a medic after he's been through all this horror he was almost court-martialed over it but a brigadier general who his father served with saved his rear end and allowed him not to have to pick up a weapon it's an incredible story 
And in the end, he's on the ridge, and after they push them literally off the ridge, and there's no one left except the wounded and the dead, he's up there all night long dropping wounded men over the side of the ridge by the dozens. Over 75 men were saved because of his acts. And he risked his life being shot at and almost killed every time. And every time he'd say, Lord, just help me get one more. Just one more, Lord. I'm tired. Just help me get one more. And then he'd run back out there, and there's a war zone, and he's getting a guy, and he's patching him up, and he's lowering him down, and his hands are bleeding, and he's like, Lord, just one more. There's no one else left to fight with him. The army's gone. He is all alone. The next day, the soldiers would not go and start the battle because it was the Sabbath, and they looked at him and said, I know this is your Sabbath. But we need you to go. We've been called to fight. He said, okay. I'll, and, they, and he said, the men are not going to the ridge without you. And you're God. I don't know where he really stood in his faith. Only God knows the heart. This is what I do know. When we put on this armor, it's so that we can stand against the tactics of the devil, not the things of this world. And there'll be people who don't understand what we're doing and they'll ridicule. And in the end, we'll be proven right like he was. And he says, this is why you must take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. We have a lot of people taking stands today on this issue, on that issue, on this and everything else. Where are the Christians that are willing to take their stand on Revelation? The blessed book. Where are the believers who are going to take their stand on the only hope for us is not a new president, not a new Congress, not the right Supreme Court justices. The only hope for us is Jesus coming back and we better be getting ready. Does that mean I look at who I'm voting for and I participate? Absolutely. But none of that is going to save us. None of it. Because salvation and glory and power do not belong to the Congress. They don't belong to the president. They don't belong to the Supreme Court. They belong to this guy, Jesus. And he says, you've got to put on this armor. So what's the armor? Therefore, stand therefore with truth, like a belt around your waist. Righteousness, what God says is right, like armor on your chest to protect your heart and your vital organs. Your feet sandaled with the readiness for the gospel of peace. That you're not going to war, you're trying to tell people, don't fight. There's peace. I don't want to kill you. I don't want to do this to you. I don't want to see this happen to you. There's a God who's offering peace. Stop. In every situation, take the shield of faith and with it you'll be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation. It protects your head. Think about what you're saved from. Don't look for someone else to save you. Grab the salvation from Christ, stick it on your head and live in it. And then he says, and the sword of the spirit, which is God's word. Now, you're dressed for battle. And then God tells you how you're supposed to use your sword, your shield, your helmet. Here's what you do. You ready? Big thing. I mean, now it's time. I get my horse. I'm going to be riding. I'm going to be cutting people in half, chopping their heads off. Like I see in the movies, it's going to be awesome. Pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request. And stay alert in this with all perseverance and intercession for the saints. You're going to stake your stand, and as you're standing there with all your stuff, you're just saying, God, thank you that I can stand here. Thank you that we're waiting on you, that this sword can't save me, but you can. 
This shield won't protect me from everything, but you will. And then we're together because the way the Romans used to fight was their shields were together and above their head and they would march and then they would go against an army and they'd poke you and then they'd go back down. And when a guy fell, someone stepped up in. They were, like a, they were like a turtle moving and fighting. That's how the Romans fought. That's what Paul's referring to. This is Roman garb. And he's saying, as you're going through the battle, pray. Because that shows where you really think the power comes from. How's your prayer life? Are you giving praise to God? Because that's the ultimate prayer is, God, I give you praise. I give you praise. Amen. Hallelujah. It's all about you. That's the ultimate prayer. You can pray that all day long and never doubt it and wonder, I wonder if that's going to happen. No, it's going to happen because God is glorious. And then he says, persevere in it. You're dressed for war and God's like, nope, persevere through it. And intercede for all the other battles you see happening. Intercede for them. Pray for the saints. We spend most of our time trying to figure out how not to persevere and avoid problems and how to pray for things that make things better for lost people instead of praying for the saints that are being persecuted and standing up for Christ. I'm not saying we don't pray for lost people, but goodness sakes alive, we should be giving praise with all of heaven and getting ready. So let me ask you, how much do you pray for perseverance? How much do you get ready for battle and you're giving praise? See, this is the story of Revelation. It comes down to a place where there's going to be a guy on a horse. We're given robes to wear. We're not going to get any armor. We're given a robe and a horse and go. And literally, we're just going to be behind the one on the horse with the sword. He's the only one that's got a weapon. All, he's got fiery eyes and a sword coming out of his mouth. And we're all just in white clothes on a horse, which means we're an easy target. White things are easy to hit. It's why albino animals don't last long in the wild. And we are fully trusting. I don't have to be camouflaged. I don't have to hide because this guy's got it under control. All I have to do is give him praise. And if I'm with him and I'm praising him, then I can trust him in whatever we have to persevere through and whatever he wants to do. And I'm just praying for my fellow members around me. Let's do this. Let's go. Let's pray. Let's praise to the one that's going. That's the purpose of the church. And we've forgotten that. Man, praise giving. When we sing, it should be to give praise for what we know in the truth. So let me ask you this morning. Do you know this, God? Have you surrendered your life to him at some point where you said, God, where are you right now? Are you ready to come back to him and say, I've made a mess, but you know what? I'm still alive, which means you're not done with me. So there's still a chance. You can come before God and say, I surrender don't surrender to me. Don't surrender to our church. Don't surrender to some angel. Surrender to him. And see how that affects your life and how it changes your relationships. And there's going to be armor you're given. I always tell people, when they join our church or become a Christian, I'm like, I wish I could just give you a t-shirt with a big target on the front and the back. Because you're going to be shot at a lot. Because our world wants to take out anyone who gives praise to God. And God wants to say, those are mine. And are you waiting for his return? Are you getting ready for the greatest feast that's ever going to happen? You're going to go home for Thanksgiving. You're going to celebrate. That's great. Man, I pray that you see Thanksgiving is going to pale in comparison to the praise giving that's going to happen one day. That's our God. That's our Jesus. And that's why everything in the Bible is focused on him. If you know him, you can take full confidence, regardless of the disaster of your life, that he is in control and that you can surrender to him. If you don't know him, you're in trouble. 
you are in trouble. And I pray for you that you will surrender to this God before it's too late because he is coming back again. And you want it and I want it and the world knows it. And you could say, I don't know if I believe in all this end time stuff and all this stuff happened. I've said it probably almost every week. This world is coming to an end whether you believe in Jesus or not. This world is coming to an end whether you believe in spiritual things or not. A meteor's gonna hit us. Volcanoes are gonna erupt. A comet. Our solar system's gonna collide into another one. Something, the sun's gonna burn out someday. Some, at some point, it's all over. The question is, is there anything on the other side? And our Bible says absolutely, and you can have full confidence that you will be blessed and happy if you know these things. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to make you known in this place. Lord, thank you for this chapter in Revelation 19 that gives us a culmination of the truth. Lord, I thank you that you are gracious to us, that you haven't come back yet because of your incredible patience and grace, that you want to redeem a people for yourself and you want to give us time to go out and tell about you and you want to put us on display as we fight the battles of the flesh and we fight the reality of our lives. Lord, I know that there's got to be some hurting people in this room that feel like that they have failed you and feel like that they do not measure up. And I thank you that they can do what we see the 24 elders do and John do, and that's fall on their face and just say, I'm sorry. I come back to give you praise and glory because it's all yours. Thank you for forgiving me. For those who don't know you, I pray that they would consider these claims. Lord, and they'd be take seriously whether this is true or not, that you are who you say you are. No other religious leader died and came back to life. Only you. So Lord, help us to take that seriously. If we really mean business, then we should be about your business. Getting ready for you to come and helping other people get ready and inviting them to the marriage feast to give praise to this awesome groom who's going to come one day. And the groom, he's going to give praise to the beauty of the bride and the people that got her ready. And it's a beautiful picture of how relationships are supposed to work. Submitting to one another out of a fear of who you are and awe of who you are. So Lord, I pray that we give you praise. This Thanksgiving would be different. It wouldn't just be about running around and being with family. It would be about really seriously taking time to praise you. 